Love you, Beanie. <laughs> Illy. If you're one of our five listeners, just know that we love you. We stand with Beanie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making t-shirts. I'm Libby. And I'm Ellie. And this is Into the Murphyverse, a podcast where we dive into the TV made by one of the most powerful, most successful, most ambitious men in modern television, Ryan Murphy. If you've ever seen Glee, American Horror Story, Pose, Scream Queens, American Crime Story, The People vs. OJ, The Politician, Hollywood, Ratchet, this show is for you. On today's episode, we're taking a look at a character trope that is central to so many TV shows, and the Murphyverse is no exception to that. We're talking about the antihero. Think Tony Soprano, Walter White, Archie Bunker, characters who are flawed yet complex with questionable morals and a dark side. We'd argue that there are a few Murphyverse shows that have an antihero as its protagonist. Even though you'd expect characters like Nurse Ratched and Andrew Cunanan and Sue Sylvester to be plain old villains, through the magic of storytelling and good character development, you see their antihero tropes begin to show. Before we get started, if you'd be so kind as to give us a follow or a rating wherever you listen to our podcast, that would be great. And if you have any feedback, DM us on Instagram. Our ads are in the description of this episode. All right, let's dive into the Murphyverse. So Libby, could you please define for us what an antihero is? Yes. Um, so interesting you asked because I actually just Googled what is an antihero. <laughs> and the Google definition says a central character in a story, movie, or drama who lacks conventional heroic attributes. But I don't know if that's really getting at the important part of what it means to be an antihero because lacking heroic attributes just makes you sort of like not a hero, right? right. So I would say that my definition <laughs> that I made up <laughs> is just a protagonist who's in the wrong and someone who's consistently in the wrong. Like that's part of their character is that they do not do the right thing, which is different from most protagonists who are usually in the right. Um, And so this is sort of subverting that expectation. Totally. I think there's also an aspect to it that um, differentiates them from a villain, which is sort of you see since they're protagonists you see their backstory a little bit you see a bit of their humanity and those things combined you begin to root for them a little bit even if you know what they're doing is morally wrong or that they lack a moral compass or something like that there's a bit of their character that um, you either relate to or you see the humanity in and you want to be on their side right exactly and I think a lot of it has to do with how the story is framed so we can empathize with villains like good TV often has um, sympathetic villains, but part of being an anti-hero rather than a villain is that the story is told from their perspective. Um, so they are the protagonist. So we mentioned that um, the Murphyverse has a number of shows that center an anti-hero. Ratched being one of them with Nurse Ratched, played by Sarah Paulson um, as the main character. And it's interesting because One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest has Nurse Ratched more as the classic villain, right? Right, yeah. She's like an iconic villain of literature turned antihero in the Murphyverse, which is a very interesting angle. What are some of the things that turn her into an antihero? My first thought, of course, is 
the relationship with what's her name played by Cynthia Nixon. <laughs> exactly. What's her name? I think it's her official character title. I don't remember her name. But yeah, I think one, it's the series is told from her perspective. It's called Ratchet. Um, and so we really see her backstory, all of her inner thoughts, um, some explanation to why she might become the villain that we know of from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, and we empathize with her, even though we know that she does terrible things. Um, and so I think that really cements that anti-hero trope. Um, and I'm also thinking about American Crime Story with the assassination of Gianni Versace with Andrew Kananen. Yeah, and once again here, the story is told from his perspective, even though it's called The Assassination of Gianni Versace, it's really, as we've discussed before, should be called like Love Life Story of Andrew Cunanan because that's what it's about. Um, and so we see what made him into this murderous monster, basically. Um, and so, yeah, he really is the protagonist of the story. And we sympathize with him yet hate him for all of the terrible things he's done right yeah and you see glimpses into his life when he's not being a serial killer when he's not actively killing people right. um, you see his friendship with that one man in Miami of course I can't remember the actor's name but it's played by the guy who plays Schmidt in New Girl um <laughs> right okay <laughs> do you remember that yeah and uh, yeah, you just see like a lot of sort of like the relationships he has in his life um, and sort of, you know, how they expose his flaws even more and even more of his backstory from there. Talking about American Crime Story makes me think of another season, People versus O.J. Simpson. And it's interesting because in that season, they did not choose to have an antihero trope. The protagonist is mostly Marsha Clark. Um, and she comes out as sort of the hero of the show, which I think is an interesting choice because I think probably nowadays most people would see her as sort of the hero of the story, but there's still then and still now there's so much sympathy with O.J. Simpson. It's interesting that they did not decide to play up that angle at all. We never see, we can never really sympathize with him. We just see him as like sort of a dumb like violent man yeah that's so interesting they totally kind of disregard all of the public perception of him that might still sympathize with him to this day like you said um and I wonder if that I, I would assume that that's on purpose and kind of also makes the centering of Andrew Cunanan seem even more purposeful too because never has there been somebody who sympathizes with Andrew Cunanan like yeah in the public perception so yeah it's kind of taking an unexpected spin maybe on what the opinions were in real life yeah yeah in both cases I think I think we can agree that our favorite anti-hero in the Murphyverse has to be Sue Sylvester yes this is the real meat and potatoes of this episode because we love Sue Sylvester we love to hate her sometimes but mostly we love to love her and I think that makes her the perfect anti-hero. Exactly. Um, and it's so interesting to watch her character both stay exactly the same and also transform over the course of 
six seasons of Glee or however many there have been. I've only really watched three or four. Um, But when she's, when she comes on screen, like in season one, she's a pure villain. You don't really see any of the humanity behind her. She's hilarious. So you're kind of laughing at her and with her. But um, I would say she's kind of the villain still in season one. And it takes a while for her to become an anti-hero. Right. Yeah. I think when you first suggested this topic and suggested Sue Sylvester as an anti-hero, my first thought was, isn't she just a villain? Like she's sort of a villain we love, but um, you know, Will Schuster and the Glee Club are definitely the protagonist. Everything is framed from their perspective. And Sue is sort of the one to always antagonize them. Um, But then I realized like as the series progresses and I think maybe the showrunners realized that no one really cares about Will Schuster. He's not very interesting. The really interesting teacher is Sue Sylvester. Um, They sort of tried to spin things more from her perspective. And so we started to see Glee and the plot through her eyes, making her more of an anti-hero than a villain, which is very interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. Um, I was just thinking about how in season one, uh, one of the villainous things she does um that kind of in turn makes her more of an anti-hero is that she weasels her way into Will and Terry's marriage and tells Terry about Will and Emma and so because of that Terry's freaked out so she gets a job at the school so she can kind of suss things out and see what's happening with Will and she has no medical background but she's made the school nurse um which is a funny plot line and so terry being the crazy person that she is ends up giving performance enhancers to the glee kids so figgin sees this happening and says you know these will and terry they can't be trusted even though this is terry's fault will is connected to it so sue you got to be co-director of the glee club because you can really make an impact <laughs> And so that's when you begin to sort of see her perspective more because she's become closer to her enemies in Glee Club. Um, And that's kind of when the show takes a turn and you get to hear her stories and hear her side of things more often. Yeah, exactly. And I think another example of that, of that transition to villain to anti-hero is when we learn more about her relationship with her sister Jean um, who dies in is it season two um yeah I think so at the end of season two yeah um and her sister Jean is disabled and so that m- helps us to understand um Sue Sylvester's close relationship to the student Becky who's also disabled and so we learn a lot more about her background and how she had to um how she was a guardian of her sister while her parents were Nazi hunting in Argentina, which is another <laughs> strange storyline. Um, and we get to sympathize with her a lot more and realize that sometimes she, street, she treats students a lot better than Will Schuster does. Um, and this makes her a lot more likable and we can understand her better, yeah. Definitely, and part of um, understanding her better when they bring her mother, played by Carol Burnett, on in an episode (laughs) you kind of see how 
she was raised and how her upbringing affects a lot of the ways that she acts and a, a lot of her personality. Um, and so learning about her background there, you also begin to empathize with her a bit more. Yes, and most importantly, they sing the iconic duet, Ohio, mm-hmm. which really, I believe, is dedicated to all of the Ohio baddies out there. <laughs> this one goes out to you. <laughs> <laughs> there are parts in season three where um, you almost forget that she was ever a villain. She's working at a homeless shelter. She invites Quinn back onto the Cheerios. Um she tells Will that she wants to help Glee win nationals. And during the season finale, she gives Quinn a big hug um, and says that she sees her younger self in her and she cries. And so you're kind of like, you sometimes forget her lack of moral compass or her um, villainous ways for a little bit there. Yeah, yeah, you can definitely forget for a little bit, but then they always bring it back. And that's yeah. the point of an anti-hero. Whenever you get too too close, you have to remind the audience that um, they're actually pretty terrible. And I think Sue's Corner is a great example of this. Um, if you don't remember Sue's Corner, it's like her l- weird little local news segment she has, and she finishes it all with, and that's how Sue sees it. And she says the most heinous things on Sue's Corner, um, usually like extremely, extremely socially conservative uh, ideas that are so ridiculous that they're hilarious. Um, Right. And I think that's a great way to sort of remind the audience that Sue's not a hero. She is an anti-hero. And it's very funny. It's really, I see it really as like, I'm sure the writers had so much fun with that because it's like a monologue where you get to kind of have the character say whatever they want for however long you yeah, want. Exactly. Um, there's no like dialogue, no report. It's really just a rant. Um, <laughs> we'll throw in an example here. I gotta be in my bonnet, Western Ohio. You know what I've had it up to here with? Sneaky gays. I got nothing against gays. Just ask my sassy intern, Tyler. He has to live in my tool shed because I deny him health care as I consider gayness a pre-existing condition. This internationally ranked cheerleading coach just can't figure it out. Neil Patrick Harris, you confuse me. I hear you're gay, but there you are on my TV playing a normal womanizing cardigan wearing straight. That's confusing. And then I heard a rumor you're not actually a doctor. And that's how Sue sees it. So I read this book about the TV revolution called I Like to Watch by Emily Nussbaum, I think is how you pronounce her name. And I would definitely recommend it to anyone who's interested in TV and TV history because it's really interesting. Um, But she talks a lot. I don't know if she talks about antihero specifically. She does talk about this phenomenon where people idolize and really relate to um, an antihero. And I think she uses the examples of she definitely uses the example of Archie Bunker, but I think it also applies to Tony Soprano or Walter White, um, where the creators of these shows mean for them to be an antihero. They don't mean to create this like idol for these like older white men who um, find them funny and relatable. Um, but it can actually become really dangerous when people start to idolize someone like Archie Bunker and think that his behavior is okay. 
Um, and I have also heard from various Sopranos podcasts I listen to that um, David Chase, who created The Sopranos, his strategy was always to, when people were getting, seemed to be getting too chummy with Tony Soprano or any of the other mobsters, he would throw in a really horrifying storyline, like, you know, like killing a young stripper or something like that, um, to really remind you that these people are terrible and you cannot um, relate to them. Um, but I think Glee and most of the Murphyverse really is able to escape this anti-hero trap of people being overly comfortable with these characters because they all carry certain identities that make them a lot more complex and all of their despicable behavior is very clearly despicable and it is not framed as um, good. <laughs> I don't yeah. know how else to describe that. But like Sue Sylvester, for example, she's not get her character isn't gay but it's very clear that she's gay coded and jane lynch is obviously gay um and i think that prevents potentially other like socially conservative people from um idolizing her and same with the other anti-heroes of the show um or of the murphyverse so i think that the murphyverse is able to create still very good and complex anti-heroes without that danger of creating a following that worships them. That's a really good point. Another part that might go into this, you know, avoiding the anti-hero trap in the Murphyverse, um, if you're really getting deep into it, is the actors who play these anti-heroes have sort of a background of playing other parts where they aren't villainous and they aren't anti-heroes. Um, Jane Lynch, her roles in Christopher Guest movies like like Best in Show she has a history of you've seen her on screen before um same with uh Darren Chris as Andrew Cunanan he plays Blaine in Glee um and Sarah Paulson of course uh yeah she's really done it all she's played, villains, <laughs> she's played heroes yeah so yeah, if you're really getting deep into it, um, I think that has something to do with it as well. Yeah. I think once the writers realized that, or the showrunners or whoever, Ryan Murphy, let's just call call them collectively Ryan Murphy, mm -hmm. um, realized that Sue Sylvester was everyone's favorite character. Um, they really tried to get, like tried to make her more likable and become an anti-hero as we've discussed. One example of that is when you realize that she is a claim stan by Clayne, of course, I mean Kurt and Blaine, their ship name. And she has like a shrine dedicated to them and stuff, um, which is anti-hero behavior because that's very creepy, um, but also very funny. And I've never seen that episode, have you? I feel like that's pretty late on. Yeah, I think it is late on. I don't, I sort of remember seeing like memes or clips about the shrine, but I don't think I've seen the episode. Yeah, most of what I know about Glee comes from like compilation videos that are made by 12 year olds on YouTube. Totally. <laughs> and that's all I need to know. On that same topic, she, when she runs for public office, I believe, she advises somebody to either pull their political ad because it would out Santana as a lesbian. Um, she like works to make sure that it doesn't get out there and I forget like what the full story of that is but that's pretty considerate I would say 
Yeah, I think that's like the person she's running against, like accuses her of being like pro-gay in an ad where she, where they, or where he, like the other candidate, um, out Santana. And so part of that is like her own political motivations for trying to get that ad stopped. But part of it is like a genuine care for Santana. Right. Yeah, there's always that other, that other yeah. motivation. Right. Ill will. Breaking news. Well, we don't have a Sarah Paulson corner for this week because we couldn't think of one. So instead we're doing a breaking news segment. So listen, this is all of the Murphyverse news that you'll ever need to know. Um, is it breaking news? A lot of this stuff happened like within the past year. Yes. But we think it's important to talk about. Totally. One being, sadly, the bad reviews of Funny Girl with Fanny Bryce played by Beanie Feldstein. That is really devastating to us because we are big defenders of Beanie Feldstein and whatever she does. Um, and so I still don't really believe the bad reviews, even though I've never seen the show and have no basis. Um, I'm going to come out and say she did nothing wrong. <laughs> Wag that finger. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I right. I have no, I have no basis on what makes a good Broadway star and what doesn't. Um, I've heard people say that um, saying that she isn't Barbara isn't even part of it. Okay, that has yeah. nothing to do with it. Of course, nobody's going to gonna be Barbara. <laughs> Apparently, her um, understudy is really good. So. That's, Her I guess, a bummer for people, but whatever. Good for I them. Say, yeah, I say great. Um, Jane Lynch is also in the new production of Funny Girl, and people love her. Very positive, review, very positive reviews. And I've heard, actually, that one thing against Beanie is that Jane Lynch is just so good and so funny that Beanie pales in comparison. Um, but I find that hard to believe. Love you, Beanie. <laughs> Illy. if you're one of our five listeners just know that we love you we stand with B <laughs> <laughs> I'm making t-shirts another breaking news piece in the Murphyverse is a new series a new docu-series on Netflix um, about Andy Warhol and I've watched about half of it at this point um, it very much follows the over-dramatized trope of Netflix docu-series However, being a Pittsburgher, both of us being from Pittsburgh, we love Andy Warhol. We love his Pittsburgh background. Um, they we bring recognize his flaws. <laughs> <laughs> they bring his brother, they interview Andy Warhol's brother, John, on the series, who has the thickest Pittsburgh accent. Yeah, Andy came home from school and he'd eat that Campbell's tomato soup. Oh my God, he loved tomato soup. And you're just like, these people, these people are related. <laughs> I, um, I think if Andy Warhol had a Pittsburgh accent, that woman, that like misandrist woman wouldn't have shot him. Yes, yeah. That would be a saving grace. Yeah. Yeah, they talk a lot about that. They talk a lot about how that just changed everything um the whole series is centered around his diary entries um and they choose to have those diary entries read in an ai voice which is really strange but somehow adds to the sort of 
like sense of Andy as an artist. Um, you're having this like kind of weird computer voice reading his, his feelings and his thoughts and his life. And you're kind of like this in itself is an artistic choice. So it's kind of interesting. You also learn about his um, companion for a long time, Jed, and how he was just the cutest, nicest person ever and how, um, how that relationship ended. So that was kind of sad to learn about, but very interesting. Um, I would say maybe drawn out a little too long over the course of, I think, eight episodes. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, if you're into Andy Warhol, definitely give it a watch. Nice job, Brian Murphy. All right. Next order of business. If you're listening to this, if you are one of our five listeners, then chances are you've already seen the Mike's Mike Glee video. Um, he did an in-depth summary and review of Pretty Little Liars, which was massively popular. And his latest review is of Glee um, in a similar style. And he's only done part one so far. I think he's doing it in three parts. Is that correct? I think so. Maybe only two though. I don't know. I forget. Um, But he reviews the first three seasons of Glee, I believe. Um, And it is amazing. It's basically a movie length. You really have to commit. Um, but it's so funny and I learned so much. Um, there were moments where I was like, you have to talk more about this episode, but then I realized it's already like two hours long. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So go give that a watch if you have not already. Um, another interesting piece of news in the Murphyverse is, uh, the Spring Awakening documentary on HBO Max starring of course the original broadway cast which includes leah michelle and jonathan groff which you know from new directions and vocal adrenaline um with this i watched it it was fabulous loved it um not produced by ryan murphy at all but stars characters (laughs) people who are essential to the murphy verse is leah Michelle a person or is she a character <laughs> that is that is hard to say um you hear a lot of interesting weird gross components of their friendship in real life which I'm not going to repeat but you can go do a deep dive if you if you'd like it, the dive um, doesn't have to be that deep yes if you just it is Leah, Michelle Jonathan Graff it'll come up it is a jump into the shallow end <laughs> <laughs> it really is don't get a concussion <laughs> Um, but long story short, Leah Michelle has said that she would carry Jonathan Groff's baby if he decided to have decided to have a child, which is lovely. But the way that it was presented on Twitter was just over the top. And I it was so weird to read. <laughs> um, I also just want to add, I just thought of this. Um, but remember when Jonathan Groff had like a lot of goats? Yes. And he named one Leah Michelle. And then yes. like ate it. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. Well, yeah. he grew up, he grew up in Lancaster. Lancaster. Oh, Lancaster, yeah. On a farm. The entire cast of Spring Awakening went to his family's farm one summer because oh. they were all like 16, 17, 18 years old. That's crazy. Yeah. I gotta watch that. I also gotta yeah. watch the Warhol one. I'm behind. Yeah. <laughs> behind. <laughs> Last piece of news we just found out about this morning. Matthew Morrison has resigned, been removed. I forget. Been ousted. He's been ousted, we'll say. That's my word. Um, Off of So You Think You Can Dance, which I understand to be a dance competition show. And the reason is a bit vague as of now. Um, 
we only know that he violated some sort of production agreement. Um, and it sort of was insinuated that he might not be objective in his judging. So did something happen with a contestant? We don't know. He says, after filming the audition rounds for the show and completing the selection of the 12 finalists, I did not follow competition production protocols, preventing me from being able to judge the competition fairly. I cannot apologize enough to all involved, and I will be watching alongside you all on what is, I know, will be one of the best seasons yet. I didn't know there had been previous seasons. Apparently. I'm, okay. I'm going to say that I'm going to say that what happened is that he made a hateful remark towards Jojo Siwa. Another that judge. That would be crazy. Yeah. I'm completely making that up, but that's <laughs> what I want the story to be so that we can all continue to be Jojo stands. I think what we need in the popular culture right now is a feud between Matthew Morrison and Jojo Siwa. I think that would be yes. everything I've ever desired. And not to put Jojo Siwa through that, but I do think that she could handle it because it's Matthew Morrison. Everyone would be on her side. Yeah, she has been able to handle so much. Yeah. And that is just, yeah, one of the smaller things, but it would be an incredible pop culture feud for us to follow. Agreed. Love you, Jojo. That's our prediction for what's next in the Murphyverse. <laughs> Does that even count as Murphyverse? Not really. Not really. Thank you so much for listening to Into the Murphyverse. If you enjoyed this episode, please do give us a follow or a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. We don't currently have a topic for the next episode, but if you have any ideas or anything that you want us to talk about, please let us know. Our Instagram handles will be linked um, in the description. Whatever it is, we hope you join us next time for Into the Murphyverse. <laughs>